Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and I'm here with Derek Sivers, blogger, musician, and founder of CD Baby, one of the first and most popular online stores for music exclusively by independent musicians. Amongst his many activities, including some very popular TED Talks, Derek is the author of Anything You Want, a chronicle of his adventures and lessons learned founding, building, and eventually selling CD Baby. In June, Derek launched his new company, Wood Egg, which is publishing annual ebook guides on how to start and build companies in 16 different countries in Asia. Along with his team of 22 writers and 17 editors, Derek is using LeanPub to publish and update these guides, which are comprised of thousands of answers to questions posed by over 100 researchers to over 300 experts. In this interview, we're going to talk about Derek's um, professional interests and history, um, his work at WoodEgg, his experiences using LeanPub, um, and uh, any suggestions he might have for us at the end. Um, so thank you, Derek, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. Thanks, Len. Thanks for having me. Hey, I had to say, have you ever heard of this thing how there are an extraordinary amount of dentists that are named Dennis, and there are a lot of lawyers that are named Larry, and how there's this feeling that our name actually influences our career choices in life, right? Have you heard about this before? Um, I haven't heard it, but I've thought it before. Well, when I first started communicating with you, I was like, well, Len Epp, Lean Pub. It almost looks identical. I think it's <laughs> destiny that either Lean Pub was named that because of you or that you're working with Lean Pub because of your name. Um, it could be, yeah. Names are, <laughs> names are powerful things. Um, and uh, definitely, um, I, I'm glad I didn't go the um, uh, used car salesman route because my middle name is actually Lawrence. Ah, there you go. <laughs> so that could be Larry as well. Um, okay, Derek, so... Um, Many of our listeners are, are familiar with your biography already, I'm sure, but we do like to start our interviews by getting people to talk a little bit about themselves. So I was wondering if you could give me a brief two-minute autobiography of Derek Sivers in your own words. Sure. Uh, born in California, I'm very American, despite everything else we may talk about here. <laughs> but, uh, when I was a young teenager, I picked up guitar, and that just changed everything for me. I said, I want to be a rock star, or at least... I want to be a really successful musician. But knowing that one in a million gets to be a successful musician, to me that was a real turning point in my life because I started to focus. It, it, wanting to be a successful musician is like wanting to be an Olympic athlete. You know, you know that you're going to have to be the best of the best to be that one in a million that actually makes a living doing the thing that everybody wishes they could, right? So... It got me really focused and serious as a teenager. I started reading lots of self-improvement books and always trying to learn about the world and learn about business and communication and marketing and all these things. And even just the philosophies of how to overcome adversity and not let get things get to you and healthy attitudes towards uh, making your way in this world. And after that, I noticed that life became easier and business became easier and uh, learning to see things from the other person's point of view really made all the difference in the world for me. So um, I, when I was 20 years old, I moved to New York City to be a professional musician, and I did it. So for 13 years, I was a full-time musician. I actually made my living um, playing on people's records and touring and doing gigs and producing people's records and even bought a house with the money I made making music. So that's the life I was living when I was selling my own CD on my band's website. And back in 1997, when I was doing this, it was a very different world. There was no PayPal. Uh, Amazon was just a bookstore. And so if you were a musician with 
a CD and you wanted to sell your CD online, there was literally not a single business anywhere on the internet that would do it for you. So I had to build my own. So I got a book about CGI bin Perl programming and it took me three months of effort but but after three months, I had a buy now button on my website, and that was huge <laughs> in 1997. That was a big deal. So when I told my musician friends in New York City that I had this buy now button, everybody went, dude, could you sell my CD too? And so literally as a favor to friends, I started putting my friends' albums on my band's website, like click here to buy my CD or click here to buy my friend's CD. And after a while, friends of friends started calling. And so I had to kind of take those people off of my band's website and put them on their own website. And that was CD Baby. So uh, after 10 years of doing that, uh, CD, oh, CD Baby grew into the largest seller of independent music online from 1998 through 2008. It just blew up. They were, it ended up selling music for a quarter million musicians uh, with millions of customers and 85 employees in a big giant pick, pack, and ship warehouse in Portland, Oregon. It was really much bigger than I ever wanted it to be. You know, uh, I I really thought it was just going to remain a hobby, so it really grew against my wishes. So in 2008, after doing this for 10 years, I sold the company, which is something I thought I would never do. I thought I was just going to do CD Baby for the rest of my life, but... In 2008, the learning, growing experience was to actually move on and force myself to do something new. So probably like most people here reading or listening to this, we've all hit a point in your life where you want to make a major change in your life, whether it's a divorce or a death or a graduation or getting fired or something like that. You, you hit a point in your life when you, make, when you want to make a real big change in your life. And so to me, selling the company was like that. I, I realized I could go start another company the next day, but I wanted to make a real change to my operating system, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. I, I wanted to change the way I think and change what I do. And uh, that's when I started lifting my head up to the world and speaking at TED conferences and visiting different countries and vowing to spend the rest of my life outside of the U.S. and trying to expand my mind and see things from different perspectives. So here we are. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I um, thanks very much for that. Um, I know that recently you moved to New Zealand. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about why you made that decision? Sure. Well, three years ago I moved to Singapore and thought that that was going to be my permanent home. In fact, I filled out you know ten months of paperwork and I applied for oh, wow. a permanent residency and I became a permanent resident of Singapore, which I'm I'm really proud of. I love Singapore. It, I'm really proud of that little country. I really internalized it. I'm really happy to be a permanent resident of Singapore. I, I love it. But I think we all need to reevaluate in our life sometimes why we are where we are or what we're doing. Like uh, even in the music business, for example, I saw some miserable rock stars. I worked at Warner Brothers for a few years. I, I was running the tape room when I was 20 years old. It was like my first job inside the music industry. And I got to meet a lot of miserable rock stars because they would come in for a meeting with the VPs or something, and then they would kind of come into my tape room to uh, exhale and, <laughs> and oh, no. regroup. And so I got to have some interesting conversations with some famous people that were really miserable because they... 
they wanted to be a rock star when they were a teenager, and so they followed through on that, and they became a famous rock star. But now they were 30-something with kids, but they were still acting like their 19-year-old dreams, even though it didn't really apply to what they really wanted out of life now. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of us need, are maybe in a job or a situation that we got ourselves into years ago, but if you reevaluate what you need in your life now, it's not always what you want now. So last year I was in Singapore, um, very, very social, saying yes to every invitation, every conference, every university that wanted me to speak to every class and every person who emailed me out of the blue saying, let's meet for coffee. I just said yes, 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 yes to everything. And I was so social that I was getting nothing done. And and now everybody I knew I was there. And so every person that passed through Singapore would send me an email saying, let's meet. Even if I said no to four out of five of those, I was still swamped in social activities. And I realized that what I really wanted was solitude. <laughs> that at some point in your life, um, being out there and meeting everyone is what you need. And sometimes at a different point in your life, uh, being in here and meeting no one <laughs> is what you need. You need to focus. Yes. So yes. I just did that point, And that's why I symbolically just kind of packed up and went off to New Zealand where I didn't know anybody. And it's wonderfully underpopulated and <laughs> nobody passes through New Zealand and uh, it's been wonderful I'm getting a lot of work done oh that's 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 great um, uh, I'm very interested in um, when you're speaking about um, evaluating and evaluating yourself and it reminded me of something from your book um, anything you want that really struck me which was <clears throat> I suppose a negative form of evaluation where you invoke the um, the invisible jury uh, yes uh, I was wondering yes. if you could tell me a little bit about what what you're what you're what you mean by that okay the invisible jury i thought about this first with programming right that there are a few different ways of approaching programming either you can just hack together whatever works the, the bare minimum ugly code whatever it takes to make the computer do what you want it to do or you can try to uh please this invisible jury if you imagine uh people on github reading your code and you think, oh, no, am, am I doing my proper object-oriented encapsulation? Am I doing my semicolons right in a way that I won't get criticized for on a Stack Exchange or whatever it's called, a Stack Overflow? Yeah. Um, and sometimes I find when programming that I'm trying to please someone. I don't know who, this invisible jury that I think is going to tease me if I do something wrong in programming. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same thing in business, I think. We read books like whether it's four hour work week or right. whatever book that all of a sudden you start to reevaluate your business or life or work decisions through the lens of pleasing some invisible person out there that you think is going to be criticizing you if you do it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really hard to let go of. It's it's kind of tied together with I don't know anxiety or insecurity or who knows what kind of mental issues um. yeah yeah well i, I yeah i think I've, I, it's, it's just such an interesting idea because um you know one of the one of the things that i imagine makes it hardest to let it go is when you realize no one was listening that whole time to your internal <laughs> your internal yes. defense against that non-existent jury and and yes. and like there was no trial yeah <laughs> uh, it's it's hard to get over that to just stop trying to please other people and just 
let it go and do whatever you personally want. Realizing, actually, sometimes I, I believe that you need to realize that people are going to tell you you're wrong no matter what you do. Right. Uh, it, with coding, you could have your perfect code that would please whatever Rails guru you look up to or something, and still somebody somewhere else is going to tell you you're an idiot and doing it wrong. And it's the same thing with life, you know? Um, yeah. I think about these big life decisions, we, uh, big life paths we could take, right? That some people are pursuing money and they want to make as much money as possible. And if you follow that path, some people are going to tell you that you're wrong. They're going to tell you that you're being greedy or that you're shallow or whatever. Other people in life are uh, giving up money and instead pursuing uh, the, the charitable life or something. They're giving themselves all the time. They're donating their time and life and money to charity or whatever. And you know what? Somebody's going to tell you you're wrong for doing that too. They're going to tell you you're stupid and you should try to make as much money as you can now while you're young. <laughs> and other people, you know, I'm in the music business and so I know lots of people that are pursuing fame, even if it means making no money they're getting themselves out there into public situations trying to get famous more than trying to get rich um mm -hmm. somebody's going to tell you you're wrong for pursuing that mm -hmm. the point is no matter what you choose somebody's going to tell you you're wrong and you just have to let it go and not worry about that or just accept it in advance that of course people are going to tell you you're wrong there's there is no path you're going to follow that's going to be uh devoid of criticism so instead you just have to ignore those other voices and just listen to that quiet voice inside that knows what is the thing that you really, really want and kind of optimize your life and career to do that, even if it's an unpopular decision. That, um, uh, speaking of being told you're wrong in one way or another, that um, leads very well into my next question. I have a couple of um, big questions about um, CD Baby, and um, this one is about um, you, you had a notable incident with Apple and Steve Jobs that you talk about in your book and um, on your blog. Um, and without necessarily going into the details of what that was here, um, I would like to ask you um, what you think the best thing is that Steve Jobs did for the music industry and what do you think the worst thing was? Oh, um, I'd say there actually is no worst thing. I, that even though that little scuffle I had with him was uh, nasty and I don't own any Apple products, <laughs> maybe because of that, mm -hmm. uh, Actually, I think the the launch of the iTunes Music Store in 2004 was massively important for independent musicians. It was one of the best things that ever happened to independent musicians, and here's why. Um, up until that point, indie musicians couldn't really get their music into most places. That Yes, I set up CD Baby because in 1998 there was no place that would sell you music. But within a few years, there were lots of competing companies. So if you were an independent musician, you could put your CD out there on a dozen different little CD Baby type indie shops. And then eventually Amazon started their, uh, I forget what it's called, Amazon Associates or something, Amazon Advantage program, I think it was called, where just anybody could put a book or a CD or something into the Amazon system. And so technically you could still be on Amazon, but... It was very difficult. It wasn't very optimized. But then CD Baby represented over uh, 2 million songs or something like that in our digital catalog when the iTunes Music Store launched. And iTunes called us into their office and uh, asked us to 
be a distributor to send all of our catalog into the iTunes Music Store. And in that moment, that changed everything for musicians because now every independent musician, no matter how unknown or small, was truly in the level playing field that everybody had been desiring because every album from Madonna to, you know, an unknown plumber from Oslo, Norway, now looked exactly the same on iTunes. Everybody had the same treatment, the same placement, the same visual display being sold in the same store. There was no difference. And if you went into iTunes search engine and typed, whether it's salsa music or you typed the name of your favorite song, uh, you were now, say you typed in uh, whatever, Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morris and you decided you wanted to buy that song. You would type it into the iTunes search engine, and now there's Van Morrison's version, and here's five cover versions ah, yeah. by unknown musicians from Finland or Uruguay are listed equally with Van Morrison in a search engine on iTunes. It was brilliant, and uh, I think that was one of the single best things that ever happened to independent musicians because after Apple did it, then of course – the Amazon MP3 store launched a year later, and then the, the the new Napster and Rhapsody and Yahoo Music, all of these companies now, in order to compete with Apple, contacted companies like CD Baby and said, we want everything. We want your whole catalog, all four million songs or whatever it grew to be. They took everything, no questions asked. Every independent musician had equal placement. So now you almost take it for granted. There are so many yeah. companies out there. Uh, a, a new one that I really like is called DistroKid, D-I-S-T-R-O-K-I-D.com, DistroKid. Okay. Uh, personally, actually, that's that's where I'm distributing my music through right now. Okay. <laughs> my, my albums are up through DistroKid. So it's amazing that just anybody could make some noise into a microphone right now, save it as an MP3, upload it, to any number of distributors out there, and it will be for sale on iTunes tomorrow and Amazon and the rest of That's amazing. That's like a world of difference from where we were at 10 years ago, night and day. It's just it's amazing the, the change that one thing made in 2004. And in the contemporary music landscape, um, are there any companies or sort of individuals out there who are doing something very special that, that you think is maybe setting the tone for the next few years? I think that DistroKid that I mentioned, I, it's not a revolution. They're not doing anything massively different, but it has the same friendly, no-nonsense, cut-the-fluff kind of simplicity that I launched CD Baby with in 1998 and I think made it really charming. I think DistroKid is doing that now for digital distribution. So they they let go of the concept of an album. You can still, if you have an album, you can still create an album, but... Their system is very optimized for musicians recording a song at a time that as soon as you finish a song, you want to put your song out onto uh, iTunes, Amazon, and the rest. Mm -hmm. Their system will let you do that very easily. It's great. I have one last um, music industry question um, for you, which is about about piracy. Um, in this obviously it's been a, a big controversy in, in the music world ever since things went digital and online. Um, and I'd, I'd like to know your opinion about it just in general. Like I know um, independent musician friends of mine are, are often in conflict with each other about whether or not piracy is good for small bands. Yeah, I'd, I'd take the side of um, piracy is not a problem. I don't, I don't think there are a lot of people out there on 
Pirate Bay or something, searching for the name of a local unknown band, uh, I don't think it's a big problem. I think when you're not as famous and successful as you want to be, it's easy to look for anybody to blame. It's, it's almost a comforting thought to think that if it weren't for piracy, I would be world famous right now, or I would be rich if it weren't for piracy. Um, very often, when I was with CD Baby, people who would email us to complain that iTunes was stealing money from them because they had been on iTunes for three months and hadn't gotten any money yet, we'd ask them to provide any proof of sales. We'd say, wow, okay, let's look into this. Can you show us some sales on iTunes that have happened that you haven't gotten paid for? And they'd say, well, I don't know of any. And then th we'd ask them to go buy the album themselves from iTunes just to make sure that the system was working. And they said, well, don't worry. You know, if you're buying it yourself, so you're going to spend nine ninety nine, but eight ninety nine is going to come back to you or something. So, right. and sure enough, they would buy the album themselves on iTunes, and then the iTunes report would come in a few weeks later that that was the one and only sale of that album. Oh my! Right. So, um, it's it's nice to think that we would all be really much more successful if it weren't for piracy. But I think the truth is that piracy may be hurting a few ticket sales of Iron Man 3 or something, but I don't think it's it's hurting most of us on the independent level. Um, okay, well, yeah, so. great. That's a very clear answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, I love the statistics, sorry, that, that more people are killed by pigs than sharks each year. That huh. sharks Sharks are the newsworthy, noteworthy, media-shocking, headline-grabbing, news mm -hmm. but very quietly more people are killed by pigs each year uh so i kind of feel that way about piracy that it's it's this shocking thing that's easy to demonize and talk about this evil internet is making piracy rampant but i think it's actually the other things that are hurting our careers more than piracy oh and what what would one of those other things be <laughs> uh I'm, I'm sure you could people's people's communication skills okay okay <laughs> people's uh production and engineering skills or uh, ability to go hustle and get themselves some gigs or uh, their media-friendly presentation, uh, their photos, things like that, uh, okay. just off the top of my head. Any one of those seven things I just named, <laughs> I think, are, are likely hurting your career more than piracy. Okay. And I'm sure there's a hundred more. Okay. Um, thanks. Um Moving on to um, <clears throat> discuss publishing a little bit. Um, your first book, Anything You Want, was um, published as part of something called The Domino Project. Um, can you explain a little bit about that project and who's involved in it and why you were published as a part of it? Yeah. Uh, I never wanted to write a book. Uh, I know some people have this lifelong dream to be a published author, and it's a dream to see their name in lights at Amazon. <laughs> but... I never wanted to do a book. People had been asking me for years to turn my blog posts into a book or write a book, and I just said, no, too much work, don't feel like it, not interested. And then one day Seth Godin called me, or rather sent me an email saying, I'd like to talk to you, it's important. And we got on the phone, and he said, I'm starting a new publishing company, and I want you to be my first author. So of course I said, oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> uh, so... 
originally he thought maybe I would do a music book, like how to make it in the music business kind of book. But as we talked more, he said, no, actually, let's take a lot of these articles on your blog and turn them into a book, plus add some more. It'll kind of tell the story of starting, growing, and selling CD Baby, including your philosophies throughout. And we're just going to turn it into a little 88-page manifesto. That, that was his big idea. He felt that most books are too long, that most of us have what he called a manifesto inside of us that would be short, powerful, the kind of book you could read in under an hour, and it would be sold exclusively through Amazon, uh, Kindle and hardcover, uh, using their print-on-demand system, I guess, Mm -hmm. and uh, that he set up a system where no advance, but royalties were split 50-50 with the author, or something like that, I forget. The the details didn't matter to me. It was Seth. I said yes, and... um, I think I thought it was going to be an ongoing publishing company, like he had set up this new company that was going to go for years, but he actually just did it for one year. And in hindsight, I look at other things Seth has done, and I realize that's what he always does. He actually started a record label for a year. That's how I first met him when I was at CD Baby, is he started a record label and signed a few artists and put them on CD Baby. And he started a publishing company and did that for a year. And he started this and that project. And he tends to do things kind of as a way of testing out his ideas in the real world. But then he delegates it off to somebody else um, or sells it and moves on to the next idea, which honestly, I really admire. He keeps his systems very streamlined. He has no employees. When he launches a new project like Domino Project, uh, he got a dozen interns, people that were clamoring to work alongside him. I think he paid them, but uh, it was clear to them that this was just uh, come in for nine months, help me get this company going, you'll get a lot of great experience, and then it's done, and we're on to the next thing. So, yeah, that's Domino Project. I think it's, as far as I can tell, they're not doing any new books. Okay. Well, speaking of launching publishing companies, um, onto onto Wood Egg, Um, you launched Wood Egg in June 2013, um, and I was wondering if you could give me a a description of of, of what it is and uh, why you founded it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm moving to Singapore three years ago. I was now living in the middle of Southeast Asia and realized that I knew nothing about all of the countries around me, that I could literally see Indonesia out my window, but I knew nothing about Indonesia. And I could also see Malaysia out my window, and I knew nothing about Malaysia. And I knew nothing about Myanmar or Cambodia or Vietnam except something about a war a long time ago that we see lots of movies about and Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand the relationship between Taiwan and China and I didn't really understand Mongolia some place with Genghis Khan and some yaks I think and just I wanted to understand these countries more now that I was living in the middle of them so at first I started out just kind of taking trips occasionally taking three-day vacations off to Indonesia and walking around and talking to people. But after a while, I felt that that was too casual. I wasn't learning enough fast enough. I wanted my learning to be more focused. So they say the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I thought, yeah, this will help my understanding. I will commit now to starting a new company that for the next five or 10 years will publish 16 books about these 16 countries in Asia every year. And every year I'll release the new updated version, improved, rewritten, etc. Um, 
And at first I thought I was going to go write these 16 books myself. And that's actually why I limited it to 16 is <laughs> I thought, okay, three weeks each in 16 countries, that's 48 weeks, take a few weeks off for Christmas and do it again. That's how I'm going to spend my next few years. But uh, that idea only lasted about two minutes because my wife was pregnant at the time. So uh, then I kind of decided that I was going to be the owner slash publisher of this company and I was going to have to turn it into more of a system for learning and research and turning the knowledge into books. Um, so that's how it began, really just out of my own self-interest and desire to share what I was learning with others. Okay, great. great. I, I, um, you've, got a, you've got a post um, at sivers.org slash robust about, about some of the um, uh, hurdles you've, you've had to um, overcome along the way in the last in the last, um, well, I guess not quite a year now. Um, can you tell us wh what, what were one or, one or two of those problems and, and what kept you going through them? Yeah. Um, so imagine if this was you in sitting in a hotel room in Indonesia and you decided that you wanted to publish 16 books per year, about 16 countries in Asia, but you knew that you couldn't do it all yourself. Right? So probably then your first impulse would be to hire uh, 16 different writers, like one per country. Let me let me hire a guy from India to write the India book, and let me hire a guy from Taiwan to write the Taiwan book. So that's what I did, uh, and that idea lasted a few months. And actually, the guy from, the people from India and Taiwan did a good job, but the guy from Indonesia flaked out and disappeared. And I realized that this was too fragile of a plan, that I can't have the whole book project collapse because one person changes his mind. So then I had to think a little deeper about everything I had learned about the, the wisdom of crowds and wikinomics and crowdsourcing and all of those books about combined efforts. Um, and one of the big points that those books shared that I thought was really insightful is that crowdsourcing works best when people are given simple, specific instructions, right? That um, <laughs> I think of Hot or Not as the extreme example. I know it's been 10 years or something since right. that site, but but if you remember Hot or Not, it, all you had to do it was just, you were just given two pictures and, and almost like a mouse with cheese, you just had to click on the one that you thought was more attractive mm -hmm. or maybe give it a number or something. And, and that's it. That's all you had to do. So I realized that the problem before is that I was finding a brilliant person in India and saying, I want you to write this book about India. Please cover these 10 subjects. Go. And it just left, what's that saying, uh, enough rope to hang yourself with? Uh. It, it, it was too vague. It was too broad a definition. So that's why it wasn't getting done. That's why the authors I was hiring were flaking out as it was too broad. So then I realized that the pressure was on me because I wanted to be my target, or I already knew that I am the target market for this book. People like me that would consider moving to a country like Thailand to live there and start a business there. I know it's a, a small niche, but there are probably a few hundred or a few thousand of us in the world that would consider doing that. And so I wanted a book um, that addresses that. So. Here's what I did. I, I came up with 200 specific questions that I wanted to know about living and working in these countries. 
um, 200 questions per country that, you know, so you came up with 200 questions to be asked of each of the 16 countries. And then it was much easier because then all I had to do was go on to elance.com and odesk.com and hire business consultants in each of these countries to answer these 200 questions. And now I had a robust system. In fact, I made it even one level more robust by, uh, again, I realized that if, if a person dropped out, uh, it would collapse. Or if a person gave me a bunch of bad information, the book would suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so instead, mm-hmm. I hired three researchers in each country to answer all 200 questions. So now every question had three different answers, and I tried to find a variety of people, you know, one native local person to that country, one expat that had been living in that country for a while, and and one third person that would now give a broad uh, perspective to each uh, question. So then I hired a writer to combine those three different research answers into one essay. So now this was my robust system. So now researchers would occasionally drop out, no big deal, replace them with somebody else. It doesn't matter that much if they're brilliant or not because their answer is just one third or their research is just one third of the final answer. And it became this really robust system that has worked really well to uh, make these books no matter who comes and goes. And the books, you intend them to be updated annually? Yeah, so in fact, the ones that you see on the woodegg.com website right now are actually the second year's books. Um, Last year in June, I released 16 books that were not very good. And luckily, I I knew that from the beginning. I think when I first had this idea, the reason I said that I was going to commit five or ten years to doing this is I think any of us who who think about launching something, or I'm sure you have plenty of listeners who – would like to write a book and have not yet and are scared of the criticism of putting a book out there into the world that might not be genius. And I think it really helps instead to commit a few years to doing uh, constant improvements because then you admit that the first one you put out there is just not going to be that good. And you admit that up front, but you commit then to the following year making it better and the following year making it much, much better. So, um, yeah, my, my motto was that I know the first year's books would be not good. Second year's books should be quite good. The third year's books should be very good. And maybe by the fourth or the fifth year, I'll be able to call them great or even amazing if you just keep committing to massive improvements every year. So, well, and, yeah, at sh- that, and at that point, there'll also be a record of how things have changed over the last few years as well. Yes, And, and, and actually, exactly. there's... I mean, you cover 16 countries. It's it's an amazing project. Um, but I, I, there is one country I'd like to take to ask you about specifically, which is Myanmar or Burma. Um, can you tell us what you've learned about the situation for entrepreneurs there and how it's changed in the last couple of years and where you see things going in the next few years? Sure. Um, I actually don't have that much to say about Myanmar. It's still really tough. Up until just two years ago, I think, they were completely closed to foreign investment. You really couldn't go to Myanmar and do business. It wasn't allowed. And just two years ago, they started to open some doors, but it's still incredibly difficult. Uh, There's even mixed information about uh, how to incorporate a business. Uh, Some people say that you can just fill out the official forms and set up your business. And other people say that you have to 
prove that you have a million dollars in capital and then you have to know someone or bribe someone to get your company even started and okay. it's it's all a big chaotic mess but okay. you know hey rule number 1 of investing is uh risk equals reward so the the few that are in there doing it right now and learning the ropes are probably going to be the ones that are rewarded the greatest in the future. You think of the people that came to the U.S. in uh, the late 1700s and set up the first, I don't know, whatever, boot manufacturers or something. It was probably incredibly difficult to Mm -hmm. start a company in this uh, untapped land, but those who got in early um, and stuck it out through the difficulties are the ones who profited the most. Um, yeah, speaking and speaking of being there at the beginning of a of a big of a big change, um, you know, you're the you're the founder of CD Baby, and now you're getting into publishing. And I'd like to ask you um, how you think the book publishing industry in 2014 um, compares to the record industry in 1998. There aren't many similarities, but the biggest and most important one is that there are now no gatekeepers. It's in a very similar position that in 1998, things had changed radically just in four years. Because say in like 1994, if you wanted to put your music out into the world so that people could buy it, you couldn't. (laughs) Like you just, you couldn't. You would have to go know someone who knew someone to kiss some ass at a cocktail party to get a meeting with a lawyer who could introduce you to a record executive who in between puffs on his cigar might think that your music is good enough to sign you to a deal and only then and after a year and after this and that and debt that will never be recouped could your music get out into the world. (laughs) That was the only way in 1994, say, to uh, put your music out there. Except obviously you could sell your CDs and cassette tapes off of the stage in person, uh, but that was it. You know, the only way to get into record stores was through the major labels. And so, in 1998, that all changed. Now you had companies like CD Baby that would sell just anybody anywhere internationally. So, I think 2014, as compared to um, just a few years ago, is that now anybody who wants to put a book out into the world can do it. There's no gatekeepers. Whereas you think about what a huge difference that is from just you know, five or ten years ago or something. You couldn't. <laughs> if you if you had a book in you, mm-hmm. the only way to get it out to the world was to you know, know somebody that knew somebody that tried to get an appointment with a publisher and in between puffs on his cigar if he <laughs> liked your book, you know, maybe it would be released to the world a year later. Uh, now just anybody can put it out there. So that's huge. I, I think it's it's, yeah, the, it's the, not appreciated as much afterwards. Like how, what a massive difference that is. We take it for granted now. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Um, it reminds me again of the, um, um, if, if I remember the sort of um, one of the um, main issues that that happened in your in your in your incident with Steve Jobs was that he said, you know, people can just put their music on there, um, <laughs> you know, and then and then he and you say you say in your book that he changed. He obviously changed his mind about about sort of easily at, at least at that time about easily letting independent musicians um, onto the onto iTunes and yeah I, I find I mean I don't know if you've encountered this as well but often um, you know in in the publishing world there's a sense of um, elevated status 
that people are even to the detriment of their own interests protective of um, when it comes to the power that, say, I guess in the music world, it would be big labels have uh, to make you a real musician and that yeah. big publishing companies have to make you make you a real author. Yeah. And culturally, speaking of Asia, that's still more true in parts of the world where in the U.S., for example, or in America in general, there's this champion of the underdog that it's almost cool to be indie and not sign your life away to a corporation. But in Asia, the the biggest one is still considered the coolest one. Uh, it's actually, you don't want to tout your credentials as a small underdog indie as much in Asia. Instead, it's almost better to appear bigger than you are. And it can be a uh, cultural difference. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, um, so um, uh, on the subject of, um, I'm now uh, moving to just a, a couple of questions on LeanPub. Um, you, you chose LeanPub to, 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 make your, to make your books. Um, I know that you're also selling them on, on Amazon. Um, can I ask you what led you to choose LeanPub for your publishing company? Markdown. Okay. <laughs> I, I love that LeanPub uses Markdown as the book format. That was just amazing. I think even, um, I don't know if you consider CreateSpace to be competition, but I looked into CreateSpace once and they talked about, you know, upload your Microsoft Word file. I was like, <laughs> gone, <laughs> forget that. Like, I'm, these, these books are generated by my database full of essays written in plain text. I'm not going to puts things into a stupid I don't even own a copy of Microsoft Word I don't want to you know so I love how LeanPub is this kind of Linux nerd friendly um, programmer friendly system mm. for those of us that like to use a format like Markdown I think it's just brilliant and then the fact that you that the same system that helps me make the books also sells them at a wonderful friendly um author-friendly price is just ideal. I'm, I'm a huge fan, and I've been sending everybody your way, everybody that asks, you know, hey, I've been thinking about writing a book. What should I do? I tell everybody to go to Lean Pub. Oh, okay. Well, oh, that, okay. that's great. That's great. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say about um, Microsoft Word. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes me cry when I open it now. Uh, and, and I spent, I mean, my, you know, I've, I've got a, a, um, a PhD in English, and I, you know, spent all those years writing in Microsoft Word. Um, and it was absurd. Uh, <laughs> I look yeah. back on it now, um, and so it's, yeah, it's great to hear that because uh, you know one of the big the big bets for LeanPub is that Markdown is the way to go um, in the future. And so it's very very great to hear that that people like you are um, agree. Absolutely. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you found out about us? Were you just surfing the web, or did someone mention us to you? I think. Well, I'm a Ruby programmer, and a lot of Ruby programmers put their books on LeanPub, and I think uh, JavaScript, a couple of the Node.js books that I bought in the past were through LeanPub, and JavaScript Alonge or something like that, and uh, hands-on Node.js, I think. I had already bought a handful of books from you, okay. uh, just because I'm a fan of... I'm, a, I'm a, really a book learner, so I learn a lot. What I know from programming is learn from books more than videos or courses or whatever so I had already bought some books from LeanPub and was already a fan so I knew that I was going to use you guys once it was time 
Okay. Okay. Actually, one thing I'm sure that our that our um, uh, listeners who are, are either publishers or, or self-published authors would be interested to know is how you've gone about um, promoting the Wood Egg books. Um, actually, I don't have anything interesting to share there. Uh, okay. The because Wood Egg wasn't started as much of a business as it was a personal curiosity project. The, I only finished this year's books. 12 days ago <laughs> and up until 12 days ago everybody would ask me uh hey what's your marketing plan what are you going to do to sell these and i would just shrug <laughs> i i just wanted to get them finished okay get them done i was 100% focused on just getting them made i was spending all my days just editing and improving and writing and yeah just as of 11 days ago now they exist in the world and it's it's such a huge relief but don't have any business marketing brilliant ideas to share okay. sorry okay no that, that that that's fine that's um it's actually there's there's a lot of um important things i think for for um lean pub authors in that answer including um you know think about the writing first maybe before you before you get ahead of yourself and start worrying about a lot of the the marketing um well it's funny because if you don't mind let's let's look at the flip side that there are some people making a ton of money doing helpful ebooks in the world. Uh, I forget, it was top story on Hacker News today was somebody who'd made uh, $350,000 on an ebook about creating iPhone apps or something. And there are lots of stories out there that are worth paying attention to. But I think the difference is you can choose up front whether you are making a book for the marketplace or whether you're making a book out of a sense of like personal, this is just something I feel like doing, mm. whether it makes me a dime or not. So if, on the other hand, you feel like making maximum profits from the book, the best time to think about it is actually before you start writing. Like if, if that's your intention is to make a lot of money and sell a ton of books, then you should be thinking before you write a single word, what does the marketplace want? And uh, the four-hour workweek book gave some brilliant examples of that about I think he wanted to call that book uh, drug dealing for fun and profit because he was running a, a vitamin supplement company at the time and he was going to share some lessons learned from running his vitamin supplement company um, and felt very passionately about that title he loved that title drug dealing for fun and profit but apparently he contacted Walmart and found out that they would not sell a book with that title. Right. So he, you know, begrudgingly said, oh, okay, I guess I need a new title. And he started running Google AdWords campaigns with a handful of title ideas and then even with his subtitle ideas. Uh, I forget what the subtitle is, something like How to Join the New Rich and Live a Free Life or something. Each one of those things was tested in Google Ads to see what phrases people would click the most. And choosing that ended up helping him. Uh, seeing which phrases people clicked the most ended up shaping his whole project and deciding what kind of book to write based on what people were clicking on the most. So LeanPub is actually a great way to do that kind of thing, I think, where you can first start running some ads or surveys or whatever it may be to find out what kind of book people want or what will be the biggest seller. And then you can start writing it and even that as-you-go process, chapter by chapter getting feedback on people saying, yes, you need to talk about this some more. And voila, your chapter three is now different than what you had already expected because 
of what feedback people gave you in chapter one and two. So I think you could write a much more successful book if you think about the marketplace from day zero. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, one one of the um, one of the features we do have is that 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 is is intended to accommodate that is um, uh, you can easily create a landing page for a book um, with different titles and people can sign up um, and, mm. and, and say I'll, I'll buy this, you know, if if, if and when you release it. Um, so people could could do tests right of different different books they might want to write, even different titles. Um, but it reminds me, yeah, one of um, uh, Peter Armstrong, Lean Hub's co-founder, has this this great line about how like. A big success for Lean Pub can be when an author um, stops writing a book, uh, <laughs> and and that's because as you were you were describing earlier how you know often you know people can well I think we were, we were talking about this but people can feel like you know that the thing needs to be complete and done done and you you know you work on it for years toiling toiling away and then you release it and you know crickets um, mm -hmm. can happen yeah. sometimes and even and so one of the things about Lean Pub is you know set up set up a landing page test the idea. If you get some responses, then, then, you know, work on that project. Um, and then, but if you get to the end of three chapters, like don't, you know, pub, get, get going, start, start publishing that and seeing if there's interest out there, um, for what you're mm. working on. If, if, if that's a, a necessary, like an essential criterion for evaluating your own success is exactly. getting a lot of readers. And um, it, yeah. And it's, and I think most people probably would like to sell as many books as possible, but for those of us that are actually just doing this more as a personal project, like this is something I feel like writing for my own sake, even even technical books. I, I know a lot of people uh, say, I think there's a guy, a Steve Klobnik or something, that's currently writing about Rust a lot. And he's writing about the programming language Rust on his blog as a way of learning Rust. So to him, he might end up, somebody like that might write a book about Rust as a way of learning about Rust. Mm. And whether it actually sells a lot or not is, is a secondary concern, mm -hmm. first and foremost, is your own self-education or personal project. So as long as you know up front which way you're, you'd like it to go, you can kind of mm -hmm. optimize your workflow yeah. based on which one. Um, speaking of self-education, that actually leads right into the, the last question I wanted to ask you, um, or not just self-education, but, but ded dedication um, and training. You have a great post about um, learning to sing over the course of 15, 15 years, I think. Um, on your blog, and, and you talk about the years of practice and hard work it took you to get to the point where you could sing well enough that people assumed you'd been born with a great voice. Um, have you taken a similar approach to writing? Yeah, you're writing, programming, everything. Um, even my cultural understanding and living outside the U.S. and traveling, I think once you understand that you're not going to be great at anything at first, it really helps to instead make that long-term commitment. Uh, there's a book called Mastery by George Leonard, and I'm sure there are some other books like this, that use the martial arts metaphor. That if, if, if you go into a karate dojo studio and say, I want to be a black belt this year. <laughs> They'll mm -hmm. just laugh because they're like, mm -hmm. that, that's not, you don't get to be a master like that. First, you need to do this simple move 150,000 times before you'll really be good at it. It's, it's, it's all about the, the ongoing dedication. So the problem is, if you're impatient, you just want to be great and fast and in anything. I want to be a great writer. I want to be a great programmer. I want to be a I want my business to be big, big, big. 
if you're impatient, which sometimes we think that impatience is a virtue. Hey, I'm not going to stand for the the mm. speed limit that everybody else sets for themselves. I'm going to, I'm going to, what is it called? A uh, growth hacking. I'm going to, I'm going to hack mastering. I'm going to hack marketing. I'm going to hack this. I'm going to speed this process. But the problem is if you are expecting everything to go so fast, then you might end up being a miserable dabbler. And that's where you do a couple years of this and then you get frustrated and then you do a couple you throw that away and go do a couple years of something else and you you spend a couple years trying to be a good writer but you're not a great writer after nine months so you lose interest and now you try to go get your pilot's license or something I don't know Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so that is the opposite path of mastery that you will you will never be great at anything if you have that impatience Instead, you need to understand that to be great at anything, it's going to take a long time. And maybe maybe having that impatience up front can be healthy if it makes you focus harder, try harder, practice more. But then you still have to understand that it's still going to take years. Maybe if you're impatient, you'll be much, much better in 10 years than somebody who is just kind of lackadaisical and committed for 10 years. But you still have to understand that it's it's going to take years regardless. So yeah, sorry to answer your question. It it took me 15 years of trying to be a good singer. And I think it's going to take me 15 years to be a good author and 20 years to be a good programmer. I just assume that these things are going to take a long time, but work as hard as I can in the meantime. Well, focus harder, try harder and practice more. Sounds like um, a great slogan, not just, not just for, for martial arts, but for, yeah, for, for anything. Um, well, th- yeah. thanks very much, Derek, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and, and for um, using LeanPub as a platform for Woodegg. Yeah, I love it. Thanks, Len. Thank you.